Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're gonna have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting. time i told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why i've been especially busy lately well one such reason is that i'm coming out with chess queens the true story of a chess champion and the greatest female players of all time right now pre-orders are my love language and i'd really appreciate if you click on one of the links in the show notes to make sure you get the earliest copy of chess queens with a big deadline behind me i'll be upping the grid frequency and with that in mind, let's get in to this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I'm so excited to welcome Olivier Bousquet. He's a World Poker Tour champion. He has two European Poker Tour high roller titles and over $9 million in live earnings. But he's best known for his longevity in online poker and his illustrious heads-up career. He's undefeated in MMA matches. He's the host of the Two Lives podcast. He's a skyrocketing adult chess improver. I am very excited to welcome my friend Liv to the grid. And today he's going to talk about a hand he played in Poker After Dark all the way back in 2011 with King Jack Suited. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to catch up and to talk about this hand. It was a long time ago, right? Take us back. It was a long time ago, but it's funny how some poker hands, and it's like kind of obvious when we play out the hand itself, uh, why this would be an example, but some poker hands just kind of leave a mark. And it was back, like you said, in 2011. And it was like reasonably early in my, not overall poker career, but definitely in my like live playing career. It's only like a couple of years, maybe three years into my live playing career. And Poker After Dark was the first kind of big televised poker I had ever played and by far the biggest stakes I had ever played. And it did not go well for me. That day was one of the worst days of poker I've ever had. And how did you deal with that? I mean, when I watch the tape, you seem very composed. And yet you talk about on your podcast in that first episode of the Two Lives podcast about how you struggled with tilt, especially online, but live, you just seemed so composed. Yeah, I would say there's two two differences for me online and, and live. One is just the speed of it. So generally speaking, I think my tilt from playing online would never just come from one hand. Uh, it would just come from what would feel like a kind of never-ending barrage of hands. So it would be like, I would feel overwhelmed or like flooded or something. It's nonstop. And the action is so fast, especially when you play heads up, it's just constant. If you're playing multiple tables of heads up, it's just you're just in it all the time. So live, you just have that ability to reset, to breathe, to relax. I mean, each hand can take, you know, you can have like a couple of minutes between hands and you're just like rarely playing too many hands in a row if you're at a table with five or six people. 
And then I think also for me, there was just the kind of self-conscious vanity aspect of it. And the fact that people can see me, I think I would be probably too embarrassed to tilt in front of other people in a very obvious way. So I think those two things combined make it so that I, I think I very rarely have tilted much playing live poker. And, you know, this is a very kind of exaggerated version of that because it's not just like people at the table, right? But this is being televised, right? Like my parents eventually are going to watch this. You know, a lot of people are going to end up watching it. I also think there was just a kind of surreal feel to the whole experience. Like, you know, I'm playing with Phil Locke, one of these like kind of all-time characters in the poker world. Howard Letterer, you know what I mean? Like these guys that were just like legends of the game, like whether your opinion of them is positive or negative, they're just like clearly people have had massive impacts and people that I watched when I was just a very beginner poker player. So to play with them, even though I thought I was better than they were, or at least as good as them, just to be on TV playing with them was, yeah, it was kind of surreal. And then I just kind of always had this, the second best hand throughout the session. But yeah, it was brutal. I mean, it took me a little while to kind of get over that. So you're able to control yourself because you don't want to look ridiculous on TV and, you know, you want to be proud of your image. But inside, did you feel like a lot of those same feelings that you felt when you lose online just because the stakes were bigger, even though it was, of course, much slower hand by hand? My perception about live has always been that it's just kind of silly. Like the whole thing, live poker in general is just kind of silly, I think, just because there's just so much variance. I don't even think... A lot of the professional community like fully appreciates just how much variance there is in live poker. Like, I, I mean, I've gone 20, 30,000 hands playing online where I just get crushed, where I just lose. And there's, I'm not doing anything differently. There's just nothing to do. And like, that can be years of a live, of, of live poker. You know, there, there are people who have had enormous amounts of success in live poker and a ton of it can just be attributed to variance. And there are, I think, probably a lot of potentially very talented people who just never, we just don't hear about. They get stopped too early in their career and their progression just because they just encounter a disproportionate amount of bad luck in the beginning. I think I've always been able to take live results and live situations with a kind of a grain of salt because I just don't take it as seriously. And like, this is one of the things about my poker career is that I've never played that much live. And that this is why, because if I didn't have online poker as a kind of bedrock to the poker I was playing, first of all, I don't think I could deal with it unless I like ran really well. But I just, I, I wouldn't enjoy it because I would just feel too kind of helpless. You know, I would just feel like I'm just not in control enough of what's happening. So I think I've always had that attitude towards, towards live poker where like I view it and play it with the idea that it's kind of just like a bonus. I do it more for fun and for a little extra money potentially, and then some of the other aspects of it, but I never rely on any live poker for anything serious. That sounds really healthy because I also think from the perspective of like televised poker, I haven't played too many televised cash games, but I played a couple and there's certainly a narrative that is constructed about who's running well and who's running poorly. And you're part of that narrative and it can be very difficult to know you have so little control over that narrative, right? And I understand they have to make a story, but if you're running badly and you know they're going to be talking about how much money you lost, it's tough. But of course, you know, in this show, I think it was pretty clear that you got a lot of respect for your play, despite the fact that you were, were not doing well up to the point of this hand, even you had already lost quite a bit. Yeah, I don't even remember how much I was down and I would have been down a lot more, but I ended up getting aces to letterers ace king and, and ended up like salvaging some money. So I ended up not losing as much. Like I understand exactly and agree with you about the narrative and about televised poker and, and how it works and stuff. But it's like, you know, poker's weird. There are a lot of dynamics and aspects of the game that I think 
not that large percentage of even the professional community, like kind of fully understand and appreciate. And so like the wider audience, it just doesn't view it and understand it in the same way. Televised poker exists a little bit on its own almost. At this point, things have progressed a lot, but especially at the time, it didn't seem that similar to like the poker that I was playing on a day-to-day basis. You know what I mean? Like my day in, day out grind. It felt almost like a completely different kind of thing. Like I was prepared for it. I was ready to play strategically, but emotionally and like all the other things about it were just like, it just like stood on its own a little bit. Even the NBC heads up was just like a bit weird. Like I play heads up tournaments like all the time. I play that tournament and be like, what is happening right now? Like, it's just like a different kind of thing a little bit. And it, it takes, I think, just some getting used to. But I also think people play a little differently and ranges and frequencies are way different. I mean, that now people try to play more systematically, I think. But especially then, I think it was, you know, you see some hands and they just like don't make any sense, but they make more sense within the context of the uniqueness of the situation. Now, you mentioned playing with Howard Letterer and it was 2011, which is, of course, the year that Black Friday befell the United States and our online poker. I uh, did not actually look at the exact date of this. I, I take it it was before that. It was definitely filmed before that, yeah. Oh, okay. It was filmed before that, so maybe... I, I don't remember whether it aired before or after, but it was definitely... Yeah, Howard Letter was not public enemy number one at the time. And not that I really interacted with him very much. You know, people were, I, I guess, polite, but I wasn't like a big social affair. At least my experience wasn't. So this is like a really big, like, transitional moment in poker, like right before, like, all hell would break loose. And uh, just kind of interesting pin in history as you had uh, Phil Locke, you also had Greg Mueller at the table, Elia Ezra. What a table and Viffer. I mean, what a bizarre table. Can you imagine playing that exact same table today? Well, it's funny because at the time, the point of view wasn't that different. Like I was so excited. That's part of why I didn't sell as much action. I was like, oh, wow. Like how lucky did I get? And then of course that arrogance just turns into getting absolutely crushed. But that was my view. I mean, now... Now also it's different because I, all I do is play cash games. So I'm like very, very, I'm much more confident in my, you know, like then I had played some cash, but I wasn't a cash game player at all. So now, now cash is like the thing I know and play by far the best. So it would be different. So you'd be even more confident in some respects. I think I would be confident in like almost any lineup now. I mean, obviously there's some lineups that I wouldn't want to play in. I think I'm as confident as I've ever been. I got a really good coach that really helps me. If you could dream pick a lineup that would be more for entertainment value and fun and good TV, what would you pick? Man, I don't know. That's hard to say. I have so many varying opinions. One thing that always irks me is when people relate entertainment value to like old school poker players. And I just never have agreed with this correlation. The dynamic that exists more than anything else is simply familiarity. Just an enormous amount. I mean, millions of dollars were poured into promoting a small group of people. Sure, some of them are a bit more engaging at the table, talk more, or are just simply like louder. And, and maybe my point of view about entertainment is different from others. But you know, one of the ways I've noticed that some people engage is actually by complaining a lot. They complain about how bad they run or how bad their opponents are or something. And it's just like a lot of negative energy. There aren't that many people who are super engaging and also very positive. I just don't, I don't see that as much. So from an entertainment point of view, you know, I watched a table recently, one of those Poker Go final tables that Bryn Kenny was at and, and Sean Perry too. Sean is obviously a very controversial person, player in the poker world. And like, I don't know the details, but you know, it seems like he might've done something very unethical to a close friend of mine. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to get into the details, but like, I'm not a fan of Sean, but 
the combination of Sean and Bryn was very entertaining. <laughs> like those two guys, I was like, I was watching that. And I was like, wow, this is actually really fun to watch. Not just interesting, but it's like fun to watch. So I think Bryn has always been someone that I think is, is fun to play with. Also because Bryn doesn't approach poker from like from a theoretical point of view as dryly as I think as other people do. I mean, Bryn knows theory as well as anyone, I'm sure, but he's constantly going against theoretical principles to take advantage of imbalances in, in what he thinks his opponents are doing. He plays one hand against Scott Ball, where he opened and Scott three bet off like, I think Scott actually had Bryn out chipped. It was like absurd hand. Bryn had like, I don't know, 35 big lines and Bryn like min four bet nine, eight off and out of position. It was like, it was like, what are you doing? And I was like, immediately like, oh, I know what he's doing. He thinks that in this particular situation, Scott's value range is like this. And his bluffing range is potentially like very easy to get your bluffing range out of whack when your value range is really small. And he's just not going to bluff me again. Like he's not going to take some sort of non-value portion. You know, he's going to be super polarized. Well, actually he wasn't that polarized, but he's going to take the non-super premium hands and just fold them. And he had King, Queen, suit, and he just folded. And Bryn was just like, I mean, Bryn did some other, it's not like everything Bryn does works, but it was just like a really interesting moment where you're just like, like if you were to look at a chart, <laughs> like this hand would obviously not be in there. No other hand like it would be in there probably, but it was just Bryn just does some crazy stuff and it works. Oh, that's a great answer. Um, so anyway, but take us back to this hand um, a decade ago, before Black Friday 2011, um, before all hell breaks loose in American poker, we have this beautiful lineup for the young Olivier Bousquet. Got Phil Locke, Elia Arezra, Letterer, Greg Mueller, and Viffer, who is the villain in this hand. Yeah, and Viffer was a very particular kind of villain in the sense that basically he's taking the kind of thing I was just describing Bryn doing and just taking it to like the fullest extreme. Viffer was playing, I don't know how much he did this in this particular show or against me, but Viffer would play an absurd number of hands and play them in all types of crazy ways, trying to exploit perceived weakness, trying to attack people. Like he would do a lot of crazy stuff. And Viffer opens the button. I think, we're, what are we playing? 400, 800, maybe? He opens a 2K and I three bet to 7K, which is now is kind of funny because it's such a small three bet. But I three bet to 7K from the big blind with King Jack of Spades. And what would you make it today? At least 10 to 12, I guess. Well, you started with 150K, I believe, but since you were down some money, maybe you were at like 120 or something like that, or were you rebuying quite frequently? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think I was like, it wasn't the kind of thing where like I would lose a pot or two and just like reach in and take out 10K. And, you know, I wasn't like, like that. I'm, I know I reloaded. I don't really remember how often. But you had about 100K behind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we were... Yeah, between 100 and 150 blinds deep, I think. But like, I mean, my yeah, I make it too small. So he has two fives and he calls and it comes jack eight, seven uh, rainbow with no spade. And I bet 10K, which I actually like. I like that play. I like that bet sizing. Why do you like it now? So you bet 10K into like 14K. Yeah, I, I think this is the type of spot where you should just immediately start to polarize your range. You just don't have the kind of advantage where you can kind of bet small with a super wide range. And so when you polarize, you want to bet, you want to size up. And I would probably just play a little bit more value heavy against Viffer. I mean, okay, he has two fives and he ends up continuing very far into the hand. But I, that's just was my perception of him was that he's just like super sticky. He just doesn't believe people. And he just wants to be able to be in situations where he can put a lot of pressure on people. He's not as concerned with his combos. 
Um, and his frequencies are just kind of all over the place. So yeah, so I bet 10K into like a little over 14. He calls, turns to Jack. So he calls with five, so Jack eight, seven rainbow. Yeah, Jack eight, seven, he has two fives. So that's interesting because it's kind of like the exact hand that if you would bet super tiny, it would make sense for him to call one bet, right? <laughs> yeah. 10K is like exactly the bet size that's supposed to eliminate hands like that. That's true. That's a good point. If you just think about what his range looks like, he's just going to have a lot of hands that connect somewhat to this board or just have better equity. Like even just like a hand like ace 10 suited, you know, is like a better hand to continue with than two fives. But, you know, whatever. He calls the turn as a jack. In general, I think this jack is like a little bit better for him. But because I'm polarizing my range, it's like I don't have that many hands that just like, you know, like a jack is not bad for me, right? I'm betting a lot of my jacks and I have some over pairs, obviously, which is not great for. But, you know, I mean, the, the card's a little bit better than him, but better for him. But it's not the same as the top pair pairing when I've bet one third pot with like most of my range. You know, it's also a good card for my hand. And at the time, my theoretical knowledge is just like not, I'm not thinking a lot like along these lines that much. Like I'm just really not. And I'm just like, oh, I have a good hand. I'm going to bet again, especially against a guy who like doesn't seem to like want to fold very much. So I bet 20K. I'm also, by the way, I'm also a little bit nervous. And when I say nervous, this is part of the value of what Viffer brings, or at least at that time brought. A kind of chaotic unpredictability, somewhat seeming random aggression. And even though my hand is good, it's not invulnerable. And I don't just mean to a river, but just in general. There are plenty of hands that could be better than my hand. You could have full houses or straight. And I'm just like, if this guy is aggressive, like, what am I going to do? I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I really just hope that doesn't happen. And against a bunch of other people, like, I, I might just comfortably fold a hand, my hand to just like a lot of aggression. But to him, I just like, I just don't know if I can. And I just don't want to like, just dump off all of the money when he just like has, happens to flop a straight or a, a set or something. So I'm real nervous that he just has a better hand than me or he's just going to do something crazy. Did you feel like he could even have 10-9 offsuit in this position as well as the uh, suited combos? You know, it's a hard question. Like, I feel that now <laughs> as I'm looking back and thinking about it. At the time, like, was I thinking like that? Like, I don't, probably not. Like, if you asked me then, do you think he could have 10-9? I'd be like, yeah, this guy could have anything. You know what I mean? I wasn't like, oh, because he's wider, he has more offsuit straight. I wasn't thinking like that at all. I was just like, please don't do anything crazy and just sigh call basically was what I was wanting him to do. So, but anyway, so I bet 20K into like 34. And it's actually that bet size is almost like, I'm not, whether it's a good or bad bet size now is a different question. But I think at the time, if like, let's say I had two eights, like I might've bet like 28K. You know what I mean? Like the kind of invulnerable nuts where I'm just like, yeah, I got you. Like I wasn't thinking so much about, let me use the bet size that's appropriate for this spot, whatever. So I bet 20K, he calls the rivers of five. But yeah, by the way, I mean, he calls, right? He just calls the turn. And I actually think him calling the turn is like, it's a bit silly, but it's interesting the way he reacted on the river because on the river, he hits a five. I bet 50K and he immediately <laughs> starts like complaining. He's like, oh no. He's like, oh, you got something. I know you got something now. Which was funny because I think what he's articulating is this sense that I might be aggressive pre, I might throw in some aggressive C bets, even some turn barrels. But when we get to the river, my frequency is going to go down. That's his perception of me and probably of just most people in general. So maybe he's playing a style and it's successful as a kind of general population exploit in which he's able to get to the river in position with a really wide range. 
because he's just taking advantage of people's massive imbalances. People just aren't bluffing nearly enough, or he's able to really bluff people or take advantage of his position, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, all of a sudden, now I bet 50K. And everybody's like, oh, wow, okay, you really do have something really good. And all of a sudden, now, even though he's hit gin from his point of view, he's like, well, now I can't like raise, right? I mean, again, that he should raise, but all of a sudden he's like, okay, now you've convinced me, you've been nutted this whole time. You weren't messing around, you weren't joking, you weren't bluffing. And so he does this kind of like, it's, fu- it's funny when you watch it because like, he gets so lucky and then you listen to him complain about it. And then he calls, just calls, which I think pretty clearly he should raise, but just calls. And then I'm just like <laughs> devastated. I'm just like, oh my God. And again, this is like on the, the heels of, you know, like a bunch of really unlucky second best situations. And this is just like sixth one in a row or something. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? Like, What's happening today? And you get the speech also. Oh, so Jack eight, seven, Jack five, and he hits a boat on the river, but he starts talking right away. So at that point, it's obviously hard for him to raise. He admits that he's not going to raise basically very, very early on. He explicitly says, he goes, you're getting called, you're not getting raised. But then he takes a few more seconds before he actually puts the chips in. And immediately when he reacts, I'm like, oh shit, like, did I go too thin? Or like, like what happened here? You know, I'm just like, oh no, like what? I thought maybe he had a straight, but then, and then it was like, it was funny because you would think that him having two fives would make it so that I felt like terrible, but it was the opposite. I was like, oh good. He played his hand terribly. If I had just like, if he just had a straight and was like, I was just overvaluing my hand relative to his perception of me, it was just like, okay, fine. Like, whatever. Like, that doesn't feel good, but it's not. But here I was like, oh, yes. I was like, oh, he just got super lucky. Like, I don't feel as bad, which is funny because I think part of it has to do with like anticipating the way it is shown on TV, right? The way other people will perceive the hand. Oh, that makes sense. That's interesting. Like if I just played that hand by myself online, I would be much more upset relative to the result. Whereas in this situation, I was just like, oh, okay, fine. Like I look, I look perfectly fine and he looks like the idiot who got lucky. I'm okay with that trade, right? Okay. But again, it's all about the, I was just so much more consumed and concerned with the perception of me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. And you're right, that is how it looks. And like you said, I actually got a lot of credit, you know, like credit from people being like, hey, you handled yourself so well. I really had a lot of respect for how much class you showed at the table. And it was like, wow, I was able to generate something positive from this like super bad luck. But it was all about, I mean, I was just younger and just at a point in my life and in my personality where I was just much more interested in perception, I mean, than I am now. It relates back to this vanity thing, right? Where I'm just like, I'm in part motivated because I want people to think of me in a certain way. What do you think his minimum value raise should be on the river? Minimum value raise? Yeah. What should the hand that he is really thinking about? A straight. I think a straight, I mean, maybe ace jack. I'm not really sure. Ace jack seems close. A straight seems like a raise. Just because like a straight, it's just like coolers, three jacks, you know, just like if you have, you know, especially because I also think a jack is more likely to want to call a river raise than a straight is because the majority of his value range is going to be full houses. So a jack blocks more full houses. I mean, I guess he doesn't really have jack seven or jack eight very much. I guess I'm not really sure. It's not like I ran this hand and it's not like I really care what solvers think that much anyway. But I mean, 
I was answering your question more trying to answer it from a theoretical point of view. From a practical point of view, I mean, yeah, I think he probably should still raise a straight, but I don't think he should call me light. I, I think he was right not to want to call me light. I don't think I would have bluffed that river spot. First of all, I don't think many people bluff the spot like that very often, but I don't think I would have at the time. Because you were running badly or just because of your playing style at the time? I think, yes, one, because I was running badly and I just didn't want to add to that. Two, it, it's there aren't that many natural bluffs, right? And then at the same time, it just feels like your opponent is going to have three of a kind a lot. It's one of these weird spots, especially in, in live situations, I think, where you probably should be bluffing a reasonable amount because I actually think people will hero fold a ton. But I think the opposite dynamic plays out where people don't really bluff, but people still hero fold. It's an interesting situation. Like it's a situation where in a normal cash game that you just like grind online, I think the dynamics of the hand are completely different than in a one-off super high stakes cash game. I just don't, yeah, I don't think you see those types of bluffs very often at all. And if you were going to bluff, what would it be like a, a nine, eight suited, something like that? I would probably try to have a hand that blocks the straight and then also blocks the suited combinations of Jack X, maybe like King 10 or Ace 10 suited. Yeah. And like not the suit of the Jack or. That said at that time, he did have that read on you, but he certainly should have jammed with the fives because you could have had, you could have had 10, nine, right? And I can call. I can also just call with my hand. Because you, you mentioned even on the flop, you were in the turn rather. In the turn, you were already thinking like, what am I going to do if he blows up here? Because my hands are really good. And I know he's a maniac. Were you ready to call? First of all, I don't remember like what I was actually thinking. But second of all, I think it's also the type of situation where it's very hard for me to predict. Even if I could remember being like, you know what? I was pretty confident that I was going to fold, but then it actually happens. You know what I mean? Like whatever idea I had in my head, unless I'm using some really systematic approach, which I wasn't, I could easily just change my mind, right? I could just be like, uh, you know, try to look at him, get some live read, like convince myself that he's somehow value raising like worse, even though he didn't even value raise a full house. You know what I mean? Like you could just, like there's so much just self-talk that gets people to do all types of crazy stuff. So I, I don't, I just don't know. I, my sense is that I would have folded. Also, because I just don't think people were just going for it very much. Viffer is one of these people that I've encountered throughout my poker career that I just like try not to get into the leveling war with because I think that's really dangerous. So if I ever try to apply theoretical principles, it's to people that I don't think I can get into their minds <laughs> or like understand what motivates them. Kind of more chaotic players. I'm just like, okay, I have to call. I just call. You have it, you have it. No, no worries. So I saw a video of you um, talking to Remco about this session as well. And yeah. um, you seem to be very compassionate about your former self. What do you, what do you, what do you mean compassionate? You, you seem very happy to see your former self. Compassionate when you lost hands. What you said earlier about feeling like you wanted to be proud so that family and friends watched it. It was also like your future self watching it 10 years later. You made yourself proud. I thought it was kind of interesting. But if you were able to travel through time and tell that younger Olivier something, what would you have said? Uh, I mean, it's just so cliche, <laughs> but I would say something like, try not to care as much what, what you think other people think about you. When you say I was compassionate, I think the, the feeling that I had watching it was, wow, like I was so young. I felt like I was watching like a, like a boy, like a little boy playing poker a little bit. I mean, I know it was only like now, I guess, 11 years ago. A lot's happened in my life. 
I think I had a little bit of a later uh, maturing process and I look back. I mean, also I've like physically changed. Like I was like clean shaven and skinny and it felt when I was watching it, I, I, uh, yeah, I felt like it was a young, almost like a younger brother or something. Like it was, it was an interesting, it was interesting to, to see it. Uh, even in, in, in anticipation of this conversation, I, I watched because D- Doug Polk did a, like a recap of the hand. So I watched Doug's recap of the hand. Yeah, I just seemed very young. I saw Doug recap of the hand too. He seemed to think you should check the turn. I believe he said that you should mostly check the turn. Yeah, I mean, I think King Jack probably goes, probably plays some sort of mix. Yes. I, sometimes people say something about a mix and it's just like a cop out because like they just don't really know. So it's like, oh, it's probably a mix. One thing I'll say though, is that Doug and I have a very different approach to poker. You know, Doug, Doug has a very theoretical approach and I, I don't. Like I, I think theory is important. And also it's different for Doug. Like Doug, you know, it's, it's playing high stakes against very good players. I mean, when he was playing. So I think it makes more sense to play <laughs> theoretically in that way. I think in 99% of the poker games that exist in the world, not only are your opponents not computers, they're not even remotely anything close to a computer. I think one of the biggest mistakes professionals engage in or do is trying to mimic a solver. I think it's a massive, massive EV mistake. It's not because they're executing it and there's a better strategy, which there is, I think almost all the time, but also because they're not executing it. And the, the solver outputs are so sensitive. And, and I mean, I think it requires a reasonable amount of study to fully, like, fully appreciate like, what, what I'm saying, but solver outputs are so sensitive that when you start to miss parts of the strategy, like the efficacy of your strategy falls apart very quickly. And I think it makes a lot more sense to try to understand theoretical concepts and then develop much easier to implement and execute heuristics that sacrifice theoretical EV for their um, implementability. And then on top of that, to layer on top of that, some pretty significant, whatever you want to call them, exploits, because people are just not even close. You know, you watch, you know, Poker Go will televise some final table and it's like, I don't know, like Jason Kuhn and Stevie and you know what I mean? And it's like, okay, yeah, these guys, when they play at the final table, like that's a little bit different. You know, and then maybe you'll watch some YouTube video and somebody will be analyzing something and put it in a solver and you watch what it wants. But it's like these solver things are just like, they just dominate. They just dominate so much. But it's just like you play 2-5 online or you play 5-10 live and those aren't like tiny stakes. So people just don't play like that. They just don't. I don't need to go on a solver rant. And obviously, like I respect Doug a ton. I think he's really good and a very smart guy, obviously. But I just, him and I just don't approach poker the same way. And by the way, that video was actually five years ago now. So I'm sure like it's very, he might not even say the same thing. And it is kind of funny though to see Doug say that you should check there and then watch you bet two thirds pot and he still calls with fives. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that's true too, right? That's true too. When Doug says you should check there, he means basically conceptually, like if you're playing against a theoretical opponent, right? He's, he's, not, he's not saying, oh, Viffer's likely to call more than the average person. So you should value bet more thinly or he's not talking that doesn't concern Doug at all. And I think actually one of the things that makes Doug so impressive is that Doug, almost all of Doug's success came pre-solver and Doug, like, I think got a lot of stuff right on his own, which is just like Doug, like almost like created like his own kind of like semi-solver, like stuff that I was just never even considered doing. He approaches it theoretically 
I think he came reasonably close given his lack of solver. <laughs> yeah, he had like a private program with like game trees and then he used like notepad yeah. to like work yeah, with yeah, the exactly. cloud combos. <laughs> yeah. I actually like that about his videos. You're almost in like two different dimensions, like the reality of the hand. And then he's like, oh, but actually he should check here. Of course, he doesn't make those videos anymore, unfortunately, but it is still funny to watch because you're, you're snapped into one world to the other. Yes. <laughs> certainly, certainly 2011 poker um, right before Black Friday was a very different dimension. So you say that you would have told yourself to not care so much about what people think. And you said that that was cliche. You know, when you said you were about to say a cliche, I thought it was going to be something like buy crypto or something. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that, that doesn't seem cliche. That just seems like a cop-out answer, right? It's like, yeah, okay, you can pick some investment that did well and then tell yourself to buy it. Okay, you know, you tell yourself the name of the person you fall in love with and just be like, hey, go talk to this person. It's not about really being able to predict the future. It's just more like, I thought the question was more like, what lessons have you learned that you can apply? The reason I say it's cliche is just because I think it's, it's one of the most common things people talk about, I think, that they learn as they age. And it's one of the almost burdens of youth. And I wasn't that young. I mean, I wasn't like I was 17 years old, you know, 2011. I mean, I was 30. I think there's, a, there's this inverse relationship between caring what other people think and being comfortable in your own skin. I think the more comfortable you get in your own skin with who you are, how you live, the decisions you make, uh, the trajectory of your life, it's almost like a trump card for everything. It makes everything easier. It makes life it makes it easier to appreciate little things in life. It makes it easier to deal with adversity and obstacles in life. It makes developing and maintaining relationships easier. It's like a trump card. You know, it took me a little while to, to realize that and it's an ongoing thing, but I think that was something that I struggled with when I was younger. And I don't even think I struggled with it that much. I mean, you know, given social media and the, I, I think this massive explosion in how kind of visible people make their lives to other people. Like that's something that just like never interested me very much. I was never, never was on Facebook, barely ever on Instagram. I was on Twitter, obviously for a little while, but I, I don't even think that I suffered from this like disproportionately relative to a bunch of, to, to tons of other people. But I just think it was just unnecessary for me and it made things a little bit more difficult than they needed to be. That's an interesting point though. Just because you didn't suffer as much as other people doesn't mean that it's still not like one of the biggest lessons you learn it would have been very useful. It's also one of these things where I'm not sure that would have helped. You know, you know what I mean? Like tell, telling myself that. I always think people need to think more about the difference between understanding something intellectually and really feeling it emotionally, right? It's like, maybe I, maybe I knew, I probably knew that then. Like if you asked me in a, you know, in a quiet moment, how, what I think about these issues, I probably would have given you all the right answers or like right in, you know what I mean? I probably would have said something not too dissimilar from what I'm saying now, but I just didn't really get it, right? I didn't get it enough to like implement it in my life. And there's that difference I think takes, is the difference between, I don't know, whatever knowledge and wisdom, I don't know, whatever other cliche I can come up with. Well, maybe something more specific, like you're going to really like animals or you're going to like getting jacked. <laughs> like something like <laughs> You're going to like getting jacked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stop eating in the morning. Maybe that's something really concrete. Or like start studying chess now because it's going to help you. I think that's one I might have told myself because I've had my the first pet of my adult life a few months ago and I just love having a cat. Now, I do do a lot less traveling than I used to, but I do kind of wish I could tell my younger self to like adopt more pets. It is amazing. It is amazing to see 
the change in you, Jen, to see you going from being, I don't know, what would you call yourself? Skeptical of cats or just like not that interested to now you're just like, like this cat love, you're just like in love with your cat. Like, it's like you, you came and saw our cat and you were just like, all of a sudden you were like, you were like started cooing to our cat. I was like, is this the same Jen? What happened? All of a sudden it was great. I think it was wonderful, but it was, it was funny. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. This is all those years of missing animals, but it's a funny theoretical question. And you're right. A lot of people struggle with it because there's the, uh, the whole question of the, uh, of the time machine. You mentioned social media and Twitter. Now you recently had a podcast, Two Lives Podcast. It was excellent. I was on it. You haven't been um, active in that space recently. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know everybody really loved hearing from you. Yeah. I mean, you've always been one of the biggest supporters uh, of my podcast. I've always very, very much appreciated uh, you in that context. And I really enjoyed doing the podcast and I'm still unsure what the future of it is. I might start it up again. In the last eight months, my life has changed a lot. I fell in love with one of your good friends that you introduced me to, and we bought a house together and I moved to South Jersey. And I'm uh, kind of a stepfather now to a five-year-old girl. And I actually also live with a cat, which I didn't realize cats are pretty cool. But a lot has changed for me. That's not the only reason, right? Because I was like, I had taken some time off and hadn't weren't, well, I wasn't coming out regularly with episodes even at that time. But I've, uh, I just don't engage as much. The main reason has to do with Twitter. Like, I just think Twitter is awful and I just don't want to be on Twitter. And it just seems like that's a big way that, especially during the pandemic, because there's less, I mean, I guess there's a much more live poker now than there was, but I'm not, I haven't played live poker since the beginning of COVID. I feel sep- more separate from the poker community, like more separated because I'm just not on Twitter and I haven't played live poker. So I just play online. Like, I mean, I play every day, but I don't interact or engage with the people I play with. So from that point of view, I just feel a little bit less in the community, I guess. But like I said, I, I love doing the podcast. Um, it was a decent amount of work. It did a decent amount of prep, but it wasn't that much work. So, I mean, I could do it. But yeah, I, I have to think a bit more about it and kind of see and decide. I, I don't think I want to just like do an episode every three months. That seems silly. So I'm not, I'm not sure, actually. So I don't have a great answer for you. I did like doing it. And I, I did really like genuinely appreciated the kind of positive responses I got from people. Yeah, the community really seemed to like it a lot. That did mean a lot to me. But it's funny that I feel like one of the reasons people maybe liked it so much was because it was different. The episodes were, I don't think they liked it more because it was rare, but it does seem like there's a relationship between your reluctance to do it and the fact that people liked it so much. Well, well, one thing I'll say is that I think because it was a, I'm forgetting the expression, but what's the expression for like a project that you do for just for the- Passion? Yeah, it was a passion project. Like I wasn't trying to get advertising. I wasn't trying to sell a training site. Like I was just doing it for its own sake. Yeah. And so I think that probably came through a little bit. And then also I feel like, like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of content creators, they get trapped a little bit in this dynamic where they have to constantly churn out material. So like you have people, for example, who like part of their brand is essentially kind of like advice or like some sort of like deep thought or something. And it's like, people aren't that original or not that creative. And like, after you've gotten the vast majority of what people have to say, and they just continue having to say stuff, it just gets bland. And it just, it's just really, really hard, I think, to still, you know, I mean, you see the same thing in artists and musicians and stuff. I mean, that's why so many musicians first album is like their best album, because it's just like all of their life's work goes into that. And then it's like, oh, a year from now, you have to come up with another 15 songs. And it's like, not that easy to do. 
it's not the same exact thing because I'm doing an interview is really, it's about the other person um, and a conversation between you. So that seems like something I could kind of keep fresh and authentic, whatever. And in some ways, actually, I think if I was a more traditional content creator, it would help me because it would help the motivation part, right? That's just part of my issue for my entire life has been that I have these aspirational goals. I have these things I want to accomplish that I want to do. And I start them and I go with, I do them for a little while and I stop. And I did that with a lot of different stuff. So the podcast might be an example of that. I'm just not sure yet. Yeah, but it's also great that you're able to do things for a short time and, and be successful in them. And people can still listen to those episodes and get a lot out of them. Yeah, no, that's true. It's just I never get really good at anything, except poker, I guess. But I feel like you need to remarket those as like an audio book as opposed to a podcast. Because it's funny how like a book has that sense of longevity, whereas like a podcast, it's like if you're not doing it anymore, people are like, wait, but it still exists. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's more about framing than anything else. That's, yeah, that's why I like talking to you, Jen. Thank you. And uh, one of the things you're really passionate about is mental game. I know you've had a lot of students and you really focused on mental game because there's just so much more attention lately to mental game. So many coaches out there, mm -hmm. so many people who talk about it more actively in poker and chess, actually, which is interesting to see. What do you think is like one of the most neglected areas of mental game that people are missing? One thing that I've thought quite strongly is that our culture promotes this idea of being the best so much. And I don't think it does a very honest job about talking about well, like what this means. And I think in poker in particular, like it's a little bit different. I like, you know, again, I, I don't know that much about chess, but I can use a little bit of knowledge of chess, right? Like if you're the 80th best chess player in the world, it's like quite difficult to make a living, right? So you can see how the financial incentives like line up with like being the best, right? It makes sense from that point of view, but like poker is not like that. Um, and sure, the best players in poker make more money, but the distribution is completely different. So like the 80th, and first of all, it's not even clear to me what it means to be the best in poker. I didn't listen to the Dan Bilzerian, Doug Polk podcast because I don't, I'm not interested in hearing what Dan Bilzerian says. I heard one like clip or whatever, and I've heard this from him before. Where he's like, I'm the best because I make the most money. And like, that's clearly one definition, right? But it seems idiotic for that to be the definition, right? Because if the implication is that he's the best player, then obviously there's something wrong with the definition. It's, it's not clear to me whether, like what it actually means to be the best. But regardless of that, the distribution of profit in poker is just very, very different than it is. It's not, it's not a winner take all distribution the same way a lot of other things are. And I think a lot of times people talk about being the best and competing with the best. Part of the reason for that is because the people who are interviewed and the people who like people want to hear from are like the, the people who have had all the success, right? So you hear like Michael Jordan talk and you hear like, you know, you, you hear these people that are just like complete insane outliers, right? And, and you hear about all the hard work and all the support and all this stuff. But I don't think people talk enough about the trade-offs that are involved and the sacrifices that are involved. And to be like the best at something it can call, involves like an enormous amount of sacrifice. I think oftentimes an enormous amount of luck, not like lucky, like you met the right person and they helped you, but luck in the sense that we are all, I think, essentially capped at some point. So the best person just has a very high cap, maybe not the highest cap or whatever, but like they just have a high cap and not everybody has that. So there's luck involved there too. And I just think it also involves an enormous amount of imbalance. So it's very, very rare that I think somebody of super, super, that achieves very, very high success is also like a balanced person. A lot of times what happens is people essentially, you know, they take from the culture this inappropriate goal to strive for. 
and then very often fall short of it instead of trying to calibrate their goals to themselves, to both to their capacity, both to a coherent and sensical idea of like how much effort they want to put into it, right? It's like, if you're only willing to put a certain amount of effort into something, then you have to calibrate your expectations to that amount of effort. People need to calibrate their expectations and therefore their sense of disappointment and pride on a number of other factors and not kind of take for granted that like, let's say in poker, that they should play at the highest stakes, that they should beat and win in the biggest tournaments or like all of this other stuff. Like, I just don't think that that is a goal that people have thought enough about whether it makes sense for them and whether how realistic it is or, or whether the risk reward is worth it. I think it does people a little bit of a disservice. I think it creates some false impressions about how much money people have and how much money people make. A lot of people, even though they make good money at the top of the game, they also take enormous amount of risk and they take huge swings, uh, especially if you play big tournaments. I mean, tournaments are insane. So it's like, on one hand, you have people saying, oh, like nobody takes any real percentage of themselves, which I, I don't think is really true. I mean, I think some people sell a lot and some people don't. I think it varies. There's no way around it. This is a risk and reward relationship. The bigger pieces that you take, the bigger risk that you take. And the thing inherent is the variance. Like you can't change that. No one has some massive edge. And you're playing live poker where the distribution of tournament payouts are just super skewed. I think that's one thing that people take for granted is what their goals are. And that too often people's goals are about being the best, competing with the best, rising to the top, being number one, all this type of stuff. And I don't think it's, I, it's, I assume it's not specific to poker, though poker is the thing that I know. You're also an adult chess improver. You've gotten like a lot better at chess. You're not actually part of like a social group, but there is a large number of people who like you are trying to get really good at chess later in life. My friend Ben Johnson has a podcast where he talks about this at length, the Perpetual Podcast. I, I love his podcast. I listen to it all the time. <laughs> and a lot of the episodes, not all of them, but a lot of the episodes are about people who in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s are saying like, hey, I want to get better at this game. I don't care that I didn't play as like an eight-year-old. And that's interesting because that has no financial reward. Maybe in some cases, there's like 2200s trying to get to 2500 and they might pick up a few bucks here and there, but overall, not very much. And so I was wondering what you learned about that experience from being an adult chess improver. And I, I know you haven't had a lot of chances to play live yet, but based on your online blitz results, you've gone from like, what, like 1400 to 2000 in blitz levels. So what could you teach people who are trying to get better at poker based on that experience in chess? Honestly... One thing I really wish I did was I wish I worked more at chess. I mean, I don't really work that much at chess. My relationship with poker changed a little bit when chess started streaming. It sounds weird to say, but I started watching chess streamers. Like YouTube literally one day was like, hey, have you ever heard of Ben Feingold? Check this video out. And I'm like watching this one of Ben's like first videos or something or early videos. And I'm just watching it. I'm just like, yeah, man, this guy is amazing. And then I sort of, I found some other people. And the thing that always struck me about chess is honestly, just the level of expertise. I mean, just how good they are. I mean, they're just, I mean, chess players are like, like top chess players are just incredibly impressive and just so good. Poker is just not like that. Poker players are not the same. Like I, I just don't, I don't even think they're close. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think one of the main reasons is variance. I think if there was no variance in poker or like very little, like there is in chess, then it would be totally different, right? There are no people at the top of the chess world that got there because they got lucky. They're just that doesn't exist. There is no way to be successful by 
beating people who are much worse than you. Like that's just, that's not a way to win. That's not a way to be successful. That doesn't just happen in chess. And then I think also the fact that there's no money is not a part of it is just like makes it so that a lot of people are doing it for its own sake more than means to an end. And then I think the fact that people do it when they're young. So they just study, 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 study. So like, okay, the best chess player in the world or whatever, the top chess players in the world are in their late twenties, early thirties for the most part, I guess. They've been studying this game for an enormous amount of time for, I don't know, 20 plus years. And that you just don't really have that in poker. Even the tools that people use to study, like the most efficiently and effectively are reasonably new. If you took a really talented six-year-old and you had them like look at solvers every day for two hours, three hours, then when they were like 30 years old, they're probably going to be an insane poker player. I mean, no, okay, sure. But that there, there's nobody like that. I think you're right. Although I, with one caveat, I, I, I was talking to Ella Poppenbeck in one of my podcasts and she's like a sports analytics expert for, and she works for, for SIG, which where our friend um, Jared Enkeman also works. And I don't know if people have done a lot of studies on it, but apparently children are, are not necessarily that good at thinking probabilistically. Like a closed system like chess might be like more easy for there to be prodigies in than something where you have to like see that things aren't working out 60% of the time. And also I think chess just trains a more narrow skill set and poker trains a yes. wider skill set. And so that just makes yes. sense that you have people who are much deeper in a narrower skill set and then outliers who are even better at that skill set who can get even deeper. I'm like watching some of these people and I'm just like, wow, they're so like, and they're just so amazing. Like they're just, their expertise, their level of knowledge and precision is like so incredible that it made me almost like embarrassed. I was like, how am I so like just random. I'm just like, I mean, and obviously like I'm good, like I, I'm good, but I'm just not, I'm just not even close. So it, it motivated me to be, become a little bit more precise and to understand things a bit better. In terms of my own chess development, like I said, I don't, I, I wish I did, I don't know, three or four times at least as much work as I do. And I will start to do more work. I think if my, if a bike ever gets delivered, like I have this plan to just consume a ton of chessable content when I get the spin bike that's supposed to be delivered and it's coming. So I'm going to hopefully get better in the next year. Oh, that's a great plan. Bike and chessable. I like it. That said, I, I feel like you're saying that you wanted to be more precise in poker because you were inspired by these chess players. That's what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in terms of my own chess progression, it's like anything almost where it's just, it's just a little bit at a time. Yeah. You just can't, you can't do it all at once. I think one thing I've learned over time is how to manage my motivation a little bit. I just try to do a little bit here and there. And I, I want that little bit to be more. I think one thing that people underestimate is the value of a good coach. I got a great chess coach. And like I said, I have a fantastic poker coach. I started playing the violin. And I got this incredible like violin teacher. I mean, again, it's just like the level of precision and detail. You know, I moved. So I had to start playing tennis with a different tennis coach. And I found this, like the head of the junior program at this town that I live in is just like an incredible coach. Now my tennis game is just like so much better than it's ever been. And I've only played with this guy like five times. I think being a good student is important. Like you have to trust your coach and do what they say and like try to understand the process of learning. Like if you're dedicated to the process of learning, then a good coach can help you tremendously. If I ever wanted to learn something new, it's super important to get help from an expert. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know, one thing I was wondering about your thoughts on when kids study chess, they're really learning and adults too. The ideal is for you to think more visually, right? So you're not like really saying like, oh, my knight moves there and his bishop takes my knight. No, you're like actually just visualizing the pieces move in your head. And then maybe at the end of the variation, you like tell yourself, oh, this is a good line. 
that's the ideal. And kids are really good at that because they're not used to using language to filter every experience. And grownups kind of have to get to that. Is there like a corollary you think in poker where, you know, you could be thinking more in terms of either ranges a la the grid or just numbers more, more so than like kind of translating the action and the probabilities into your uh, words? I would say probably ranges is the best analogy. I think the number one, like the reflexive default reaction is to think about your hands. And that makes sense. I think it's actually something people don't do enough of actually is like understanding what their hand wants to do in a certain situation. Now, like everyone's just like range, range, range. I mean, it's, it's good to know what your hand wants to do actually to incorporate that piece of the puzzle. But from an amateur beginner point of view, from a progression point of view, it's a huge adjustment to start thinking in ranges. And I think that is a, a big, big, big difference. That is the hallmark of someone that's like understanding poker is thinking, thinking that way. I mean, I guess chess is an enormous amount of pattern recognition too. I think there's a specific kind of pattern recognition that I employ or benefit from, which is just like number patterns and ratio patterns. Like I do a lot of bet size exploits and you can just get a real sense for the way people play. I mean, at least online and especially non-pros, but pros too, by their bet sizes. I like see a bet size and I just immediately, I immediately know, like, I don't like have a sense, right? I have a very, very good sense for what percentage of the pot it is. A lot of times people are hitting buttons, like an individual button. And that's another thing. If you play a ton of tables, like a lot of pros play a ton of tables, you miss that kind of stuff or it's harder to see. Can you give me an example? Like there are guys who just like their bet size is just corresponds to the strength of their hand. And they bet a third pot or half pot or two thirds pot or full pot or over bet or something like that. When you give PO like four bet sizes or three bet sizes, like it's going to use them for the most part. Like sometimes it doesn't, sometimes there's a clear preference, but like a lot of times it uses, it uses them. And so what a lot of people do pros is they try to come up with strategies that mimic the solver. And so there's like, oh, I'm going to bet this size, you know, I'm going to divide my range up into these categories and use these bet sizes. That's very, very hard to do. And there are some hands that are just much more obvious that fit into certain bet sizes. That's the part they get right. And then it's, you know, some of the other hands are much more difficult to do. And especially when there's mixes and stuff like that. And not just an individual person, right? It's not just like, oh, player X does this. But you just get like, oh, this, I call them G-pop tendencies, like a general population tendency. And you can subdivide the general population into some things, right? Like good pro, okay pro, like good amateur, you know, whatever, maniac, amateur, whatever. There's a bunch of little subcategories, but people perceive and engage with poker in a limited number of ways. I don't really know exactly how the pattern recognition works in chess the same way. I'm sure there's a ton of it and there's a ton of positions that look similar or pawn structures that operate similarly with similar plans or whatever. A big part of my game, I think, is, is number pattern recognition. Like immediately noticing what the number is and what it corresponds to percentage-wise, whether you're playing live or online. I don't know about live. I haven't played live in a while. I don't have a lot of confidence in my live game. I'm sure it's true live too. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't played live in a while. And I haven't played that much live overall in my career. I've played some, but a lot of people have played a lot more. So you're meaning like online, somebody bets a size that they haven't bet before. So like, first of all, you immediately recognize the percentage of the pot. And then secondly, you're able to access your kind of like G-pop tendencies of their player profile and like react accordingly really quickly based on this kind of database of patterns that you have. Like, for example, a lot of times when people bet small, it's because they're betting a very high frequency of their range, right? But then there are certain things that come with that. 
if somebody bets their range in a spot and the second question or one of the first questions is like, how do they respond to check rates? If people get that first part right, or they get that first part, but then they, they're bad at the second part, right? Like they don't defend enough or they three bet like too much of their value, you know, bet three bet, or even they're, they're maybe using a small bet size in which they, it implies they're betting most, if not all of their range, but they're not actually doing that. But they're actually also kind of checking back, you know, 25% of their range and it's a weakest 25% of their range. All of these things kind of work together to form a picture of like what's going to work against them. I mean, this is how, this is how I play. A lot of people don't play like this, but this is how I play. I don't care as much what my hand is, like he's going to fold here or like he likes his hand, right? It's like, I know he likes his hands. Well, I'm not going to bluff here and I'm going to take all my good hands and raise with them or I'm going to overfold or whatever. I just like, I do a lot of stuff that is, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's like, it's based on some sort of recognition pattern recognition. And a lot of it is the number numbers because it's a bet, betting game, right? I mean, poker is ultimately a betting game. That's really useful. So one last question, Olivier. Uh, I know you're interested in uh, psychology. You talked about potentially getting a degree in psychology so that you could like further your mental game coaching and add some science into it. I'm very interested in counseling, coaching, this type of mentor-mentee, one-on-one type of relationship. And I was interested in psychology as a way of, like you said, introducing some science and formalizing it. It takes an enormous amount of time to do. I looked into some programs and there's also a ton of like hours that you have to do before you can operate on your own. I mean, from a very personal point of view, it just kind of depends what happens with uh, having children, having additional children. I'm not sure. It's something that is definitely interesting to me. But I also will say that I have kind of rekindled a passion for poker. I love sitting at my computer and playing. And I play more than I've played in a while. I'm as confident as I've ever been. I just want to, I just love to play. I think what is more likely is that I will start my podcast back up. Then I will get a, a master's degree in psych or something. Oh, wow. Well, I'm sure listeners will be super happy to hear that. Thank you so much, Olivier, for joining me. It was so good to go back in time and um, talk about this King Jack suit in hand, and more importantly, as a portal to everything that you're doing now and some of your, your general advice. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jen. Olivier Bousquet. Bye, everyone. King Jack suited. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.